sermon by talking about politicians. We started talking about how politicians make promises and how as Americans, every two years we go through a cycle of listening to politicians make promises. And they usually start their political speeches with small promises and they move up to the big ones where they're going to transform the world. And we said there was a connection to to what politicians are doing in their political speeches with what's going on with Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3. Peter starts in that moment with healing a lame man. It's the healing of legs beginning to walk. It's the restoration of broken legs. And then Peter moves to the restoration of a human body going from death to life. That's the body of Jesus. And then in the sermon, it crescendos at verse 21 where Peter says that because of Jesus, we will one day see the restoration of all things. So we went from the restoration of legs to a body to one day the restoration of all things. It was this move from something small to something big. But Peter didn't just preach that sermon just to give information. He wanted to move his listeners to do something. Very much like politicians don't just make speeches so that you think they're great orators. They're looking for something. They want your vote. At the end of the day, they could care less what you say about them. If you will vote for them, that's what matters. That's what they're grabbing for. And that's what's happening here with Peter. Now, I'm not calling Peter a politician. But what I am saying is Peter is preaching for a purpose. And that's the thing we want to grab in this, in this move uh, through the sermon. You see, this is the same passage we looked at last week, but there are these two big rocks sitting in, this, in, this, in these verses. And last week we grabbed and we looked at that one big rock, and this week we're going to take on that next one. So let's take a look. We're going to read verse 17, pick up with verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. This is the second half of this sermon Peter is preaching. And here we will uh, look at that other big rock happening in the sermon. Here it is. Verse 17. Now, you fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as you did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. A lot going on in those verses. Now, the crescendo we noted last week was sitting in verse 21 and verse 20, uh, 25 there that Peter's making the point that everything's going to end with the restoration of all things. And so if we just summarized everything we did last week, I'd say it this way. Here's how I'd summarize what we did last week. We'll go to that next slide. Here it is. Jesus' resurrection has launched the beginning of the new creation now. And it points to the final day when all things will be made right. You see, the Jews had this idea that one day the Lord would come. He would come in all the splendor and His glory. He would come to return as the reigning King from Zion. 
And he would rule all nations and he would vindicate his people and he would remove his enemies. And that would be the day of the new creation. There would be new heavens and a new earth ruling from his holy city. And all would be made well. It would be the lion sitting with the lamb. It would be this, this refreshed world. But what no one knew was that all of that would begin when the promised one who was buried came back to life. And when his body breathed air into his restored lungs, it set in motion the new creation that started spreading from that day forward. And it is a promise then that anyone that connects themselves with that life will also get everything that goes with him. They too will participate in the new creation. And so you can bank on the fact that everything will be made well with Jesus because he's actually alive right now. And that's what Peter's dealing with here. That's one section of, of what's happening here. But that hope for the restoration of all things, it over time turns into a generic hope. It, it kind of begins to turn into these things that, that we say to comfort one another, like this too shall pass. Or things like, you know, everything will eventually get better. Even people like Oprah and, and, and those in our culture that pick up pop theology, they, they eventually will talk about things being made right one day. There's this hope that we can make, it, make for ourselves a better day. We can make a better country. We can make a better world. I mean, I remember when Jackson, Michael Jackson with all of his friends were singing that song in the 1980s. Do you remember? We are the world. you remember this? If you don't, just pull it up on YouTube. You'll be inspired. But here's the thing. You can't gather all your friends together. Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I, I'm blanking. I'm looking at them right now in my mind. You know, there are a lot of famous people. They're all singing at the microphone. And they're thinking, we are the world and we're going to make things, uh, we're gonna make things better. Everything's going to be okay. That's what they're grabbing for is this hope of the restoration of all things. It's, it's an echo of the very thing Peter's preaching here. But it's turned into some generic hope sitting far off in another land. Something that we one day may accomplish if we just all can get along. But the thing about this hope, this restoration of all things, if there's nothing generic about it. It is tied to Jesus. You don't get the restoration of all things if you don't get Jesus the Christ. We all want this generic hope that everything will be made well, but we don't always want the person to whom it is tied. But here Peter gives no, no other option. And this is where we, we really then move from verse 21 and 25 where we camped out last week. And we just make this pivot to verse 22 and 26. And that's where Peter makes it very clear there's nothing generic about this hope, this restoration of all things. It is tied to Jesus. And in verse 22, he quotes from Deuteronomy 18. It's this great promise that resonated, it echoed, it, it rang through the centuries. From the moment Moses said it down to the day Jesus was walking in his public ministry. Deuteronomy 18, I want you to see it in its context. Here's what he says. Moses saying this. Here it is. Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. 
The Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. This is the promise that one day God's sending a prophet, a prophet greater than Moses. A prophet that one day will fully rescue his people and he will bring words of life. You can imagine by the time you get to Jesus' day, this first century, you can imagine how the Jews living in Palestine and scattered throughout the Roman world are hoping that these words would come true. And even decades before Jesus arrives on the scene, the Jews are identifying certain people as those that are the prophet Moses promised. They believe that God has sent someone. This is finally the prophet that Moses had predicted. And he will rescue us from our enemies. And over and over again, what you see in the centuries before Jesus shows up on the scene is Jews picking up the mantle of this prophet and going about the countrysides and into cities and they lead rebellions. And over and over again, anyone who is occupying Palestine, be it the Romans, be it the Greeks before them, be it the Jews before them, uh, the Egyptians before them, over and over again, the people in power put down the rebellions. And so everyone who would have thought that this man was the one, well, their hopes were dashed. And over and over again it happens. And so when Jesus shows up, He's carrying the echoes of the promise of Moses that, that there would come a prophet and it just so happens that Jesus, I think, picking up the echo of Deuteronomy 18, is saying for the final time, I am Him. And you, will, you listen to no other. Moses was writing about me. Here's what he says. He says it this directly. John 5, look at this. I mean, Jesus couldn't be any clearer here on who you need to listen to. John 5.46, he's talking to the religious leaders, the religious leaders that knew their Bibles. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Sitting in those few words, I believe, is Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. That Jesus is the final prophet. He's the one that brings the words of life. He is bringing the words of God to His people, but He is greater than Moses, and He will rescue His people, and they would finally be delivered. They will be delivered forever and ever. He will initiate the new creation. Moses was writing about them. I think Jesus knows that He is finally fulfilling Deuteronomy 18 and many other passages along with it. But here, Deuteronomy 18 is taking on flesh. This is the prophet. Now, over time, this idea that Jesus is the final prophet, it has gone to the wayside. It didn't take long uh, for us to be long, but in the span of history, it took about 600 years for another guy to show up on the scene in the Middle East who had a massive influence. We're still feeling it today. There was a prophet by the name of Muhammad. And now it is said that he is the final prophet. That Muhammad brings the final words of God to the people. Jesus, yes, a prophet, but not the final prophet. That same trend made its way over to the United States. You remember in the early 1800s, maybe, that there was a guy named Joseph Smith in upper New York, uh, upstate New York, and he believed that God had sent an angel, the angel Moriah, and these tablets had come giving the final revelation, finally finishing what God wanted to say to humanity. And these are the Mormons. 
They believe that Joseph Smith is that final prophet, the prophet that was to come. Jesus, yes, yes, Jesus is vitally important, but a prophet in a long line of great prophets. You see, it didn't take long to turn Jesus into another prophet, another smart man, uh, uh, maybe not the smartest, maybe a guy connected to God, but not the guy connected to God, still looking for someone else to come. But the early Christians were really clear on this. There is no other voice. There is no other prophet to come. And over the decades after Jesus had risen from the dead and His Spirit had gone out among His people, bringing and creating these communities of faith among the Roman Empire, there was this letter pen. We're not exactly sure who wrote it. A lot of good guesses. But the letter starts, it's a letter to the Hebrews, these Jewish Christians, and the letter starts this way. I don't think it gets any more clear on who Jesus is than this. Hebrews 1, 1 through the first part of verse 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. And through Him also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. You know, a prophet was coming who would carry the Word of God. Now he sustains everything by his Word. He is the exact representation of God's glory. There is no one to come like him. He is the final prophet. He is the one that would bring new creation. And so if this is the kind of way you talk about Jesus, then it would make sense that you would move then to the next step Peter will make in the sermon. Because of all of this, because this is the guy who brings all of these good things, then repent. Turn around and connect yourself to Him. It would make no sense to go connect yourself to someone who did not have life. That'd be like looking at someone who was carrying bread and someone who was carrying an empty bucket with nothing in it. And as you are starving, going to the man with the empty bucket and bypass the one with bread. It makes no sense. It is actually a logical move Peter makes. If he is the one with life, if he is the final prophet, then you would repent. You would turn around wherever you were walking. You would change direction and you would go to the one with life. And so if I just had to put it in a way we might say it today, here's the way I would say what Peter's doing. Everything hinges on a person's relationship with Jesus because he has the words of life. In the end, it will not be do you carry all of the correct information in your head? So that as if God could have a barcode scanner, scan your head, if you got the right information, if you have the right answer, then you're good. No, God's going to be looking for relationship. And relationship is always going to be tied to the kind of person you have become and how you live your real life. It will hinge on your connection to Jesus. Now, will that include information? Absolutely. You need to understand who He is in order to be in a right relationship with Him. This is why the first Christians preach sermons. It's why we have a book of first sermons. Information matters, but the information leads you then to connect in relationship with Jesus. And it's why in verse 19 and 26, He's going to tell His listeners to repent and to turn to Him. And then in the end of the sermon, He will say to turn from your wicked ways. And we often think as wicked as like, man, were they just a bunch of murderers? Like, were they, like, going about robbing widows' houses? No, in the Bible, wicked means to be in rebellion. It means to be off course from the vocation God gave you. So, 
you can be in rebellion and look really good. And people can actually like you. Because you fit the particular image a culture wants you to have. You see, wicked isn't always upfront and glamorous. Wicked can be you trying to be your own God, doing what you want, concerned only about yourself, and that takes on many different forms. And it often isn't about murdering and robbing and stealing and cheating. It comes in much subtler forms. Uh, See, turning from your wicked ways is a message for everybody. It's a message for you, for me, still today. And it's all hinging on Jesus. And Peter wants to make sure this is very clear. So when he's defending the sermon he's just preached in Acts chapter 4, he's among these religious leaders defending what he's just said. He makes sure that they they, they aren't confused about what he's just said. Here's what he says, Acts 4. Look how clear he gets. Acts 4, verses 11 through 12. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. That's it. And in our culture, there are a lot of different options for salvation. It just so happens that as I see reality, there is only one name, and it is Jesus. This is the only name that you are, can come into relationship with and find life. And then decades later, decades later, the guy that was with Peter when he preached this sermon, he writes several letters. And in that first one he wrote, 1 John chapter 5, he also says it very clearly. Here's the way he says it. He says this, John 5, 11 through 12, and this is the testimony. So this is the thing we're going to talk about. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whomever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, in our culture, that sounds mean. Because that's exclusive. But it also is very logical. If there is knowledge that someone has life and you want nothing to do with him, then you do not have life. There's a test that needs to be taken, and you don't take it. You get a zero. That's not someone being mean. That's just reality. And so there's something very logical here. This isn't religious. This isn't religious as if it's somewhere out, uh, disconnected from reality. This is just the way reality works. And so if you want life, you connect yourself with the one who has life, and that happens to be Jesus. And why Jesus? Because he was dead. Literally, his brain stopped functioning. His lungs stopped moving. Decay began to move through his legs after two days in a grave. And on the third, things started coming back to life. And air came back. His heart started beating. And then, days later, he ate fish with his disciples. He had breakfast. That's a man with life. So when you connect yourself with that man who has life and the words of life, then you get life. You get it now and forever. It's all very logical when you think about it. And so what Peter tells them is the message that comes down to us, still relevant, and that's where I find the application. There is still a call for you and me to repent, to move and be connected to Jesus. That's the call. Now for some maybe watching, maybe even in the room, 
You need to hear that. You, you need to repent. Literally, turn around. turn, Change the way you're living and come to Jesus for the first time. I don't know, as I look at most of you, I'm assuming that most of you have turned your life around in some substantial way. You have been baptized. You are making moves to walk in the way of Jesus with a community of believers. I assume most of you are doing that. I assume many people online, if you've made it this far, you're probably in that camp. But some of you may need to hear it. So you may need to get baptized. Okay. But what about those of you who've done all that and you're walking, you're at least making the effort to walk the way of Jesus? Well, I still think we need the call. It's a regular call to repent and move in the way of Jesus. Now, what's interesting about that is that it actually is not very new. Like, I didn't just say anything new to you. Like, we can have a revival, and the revival would be all about what I just said. Like, we... We know we need to constantly hear that we need to be connected to Jesus. I didn't say anything new to you. So I've got to ask this question. Why do we struggle with this? Like, why do we struggle to follow Jesus so much? Ah, there are a lot of answers to that. But I want to tell you one that I have really struggled with. And I'm going to assume you might struggle with it too. I think it's something that is pretty pervasive that we really talk about. And I want to just make sure I get my words right. Let me, let me go ahead and say it this way. We're going to just read it right off the screen. When I say we, me, you just come along. Here's where I think our struggle is. I think we struggle in part. This is struggle to stay connected to Jesus because we think of Jesus only in religious terms. Now, we say he's holy, righteous, and godly, and he is. But it's almost like we think he lives in a box and he comes out only for things like church and prayer and Bible reading. Do you, do you resonate with that at all? Like, you came this morning, you get your Jesus, you got your Jesus on. I hear people say things like that. You get your Jesus on, like hashtag Jesus on. And then you go home and you go live the way you live. I mean, what does Jesus have to say about having lunch today? Is he really concerned with what you eat? I mean, really? You came to church, you got your Jesus on. Good. You might read your Bible every day. Great. And that's where you'll find Jesus. But is Jesus with you when you turn on the TV to watch America's Funniest Videos tonight at 7 o'clock on ABC? I don't know. He seems to be much more concerned with Bible reading than he does when I'm watching on TV. That's why we elevate things like prayer, Bible reading, and church. But I think, I think that this idea of Jesus being in a box, I think it, it has an underlying reason. I know for me that I needed to get my hands around and so when I heard one of my mentors, Dallas Willard, say this, it has been one of the things that has impacted me the most over the last eight years. Now, I never knew Dallas Willard personally. I've known people that knew him, and I've read all of his books, and I've listened to many of his lectures, but I never knew him. But I want to share with you at length some things Willard said about Jesus. This was probably the most profound thing I ever have heard about Jesus that has changed the way I live. So, I'm going to pull three quotes. They're a bit lengthy. I don't know that I've ever quoted someone that many times in one sermon uh, like this, but I think it's worth it. So, come with me through a little journey through his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Here's the first thing he says. We must simply accept that Jesus is the best and smartest man who ever lived in this world. That he is even now the prince of the kings of the earth. Then we heartily join his cosmic conspiracy to overcome evil with good. Let's go to the next one. 
Can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if He were not smart? If He were divine, would He be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could He be what we take Him to be in all other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived? The biblical and continuing vision of Jesus was one of, uh, was of one who made all the created reality and kept it working, literally holding it together. And today we think people are smart who make light bulbs and computer chips and rockets out of stuff already provided. He made the stuff. Small wonder then that the first Christians thought he held within himself all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One more. One more. Here it is. He is not Jesus. He is not just nice. I just got it. This is one of my favorite lines. He is not just nice. He is brilliant. He is the smartest man who has ever lived. He is now supervising the entire course of world history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. You see the theme running through each of those quotes? Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. If you would have asked me ten years ago who the smartest person in the world was, I wouldn't have come up with Jesus. If you would have asked me who God is, if you would have asked me how to be saved, if you asked me by whose name do we have salvation, if you would have asked me who is the most righteous person to ever live, if you asked me many of these religious questions, I would have said Jesus. But if you would ask me who the smartest person was, I don't think I would have said Jesus. Because intelligence and knowledge is not something I put in the religious arena. I put Jesus in the faith category. And what Willard is saying is, no, Jesus is in the reality category. And knowledge is part of reality. He is the best informed person in the world. So if you want to know how to live your real life, like your life, your life with cancer, your life with a great job, your life with bad co-workers, your life with ugly, mean children, your life with great, awesome children who always listen. If you want to know how to live that life, well, Jesus is the best informed person in the world. That's what Willard's saying. And for me, that changed everything. Because it brought religion and faith and moral morals, the Bible, it brought it all into where I live. And for so long, I had kept that stuff in a box way over here. And I, I ventured into that box often. I mean, I was a graduate student. I was in seminary. I read the Bible all the time. I mean, I lived in that box. I paid money to go live in that box. But once I left that box, I came back to real life. And what Willard did for me was say, Jesus is always part of real life. He's the smartest person that's ever lived. And he actually knows what he's talking about. So I think one of the reasons that we struggle to follow Jesus, to repent and come to the one who will restore all things, the one who has the words of life, the final prophet, is because I don't, I'm not always convinced we think he knows what he's talking about for real life. Maybe he knows how to help you with some of your moral dilemmas. But for what to watch on TV? I don't know about that. What Willard says is, he knows and can help with all things. That's a different vision of Jesus. But it's one we find right there in the Bible. 
What did we think Jesus meant when he said he had the words of life? Just a religious life? No. All of life. All right. Maybe one of my favorite next steps that we've had in a long while, and I just said that a few weeks ago, so I guess I'm on a superlative roll. Um, here's our next step. Take a look. I, I think this could do wonders for how we view Jesus. So this week, here's a practical next step. In your prayers like this, in the name of Jesus, the smartest person in the world. Amen. Amen. Don't we usually put a lot of other descriptions, uh, connect, connect them to Jesus when we end a prayer? I know I do. Every week I end a prayer. I'll stand up here and end a prayer and try to link some things I've just talked about in the name of Jesus and then, you know, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I mean, I, I mean, I will pile them on. You think I'm profound. No, I've just got a lot of different descriptions in my head about Jesus and I just pack them on at the end of a prayer. Well, why not describe Jesus as He really is and why don't we end our prayers by calling Him? the smartest person in the world. And you know, the goal here is to train ourselves to see Jesus for who He really is. That's the goal here. I'm not trying to add, add something that um, burdens you day by day. This is a matter of training. This is a matter of training. You just don't jump into being a math expert, right? You've got to practice. You, you just don't step onto the stage and play, uh, play the piano at a you know, at a symphony hall without any practice. And so if we're going to catch a different vision of Jesus, one that is rooted in the Bible, then we're going to need to train ourselves with the way we talk. And one way we can do that is how we end our prayers. In the name of Jesus, the smartest person in the world. Amen. All right, so let me pray for us. And then we'll move into our time of response. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you were so gracious to give us an inspired word written and kept over many centuries by many people of faith to transcribe it, to give it to us. And now your Holy Spirit meets us as we dig and we explore that word and we hear and find so would you help us in our real lives to follow Him right where we are? Would you help us to make decisions that move in the way of love and not bitterness? Would you help us where we need to forgive, where we need to be patient, where we need to endure? And may we be able to do these things because we are learning from our Master, Jesus. And so would you empower us to do this as we train? And that your grace would fuel us Fuel us like a, a jet engine is fueled by gasoline. Would you just fuel us that we would be able to become the kind of people that can live like Jesus, repenting, turning from our wicked ways, and finding a refreshing life that comes from your Son. So we pray that and get it as practical as we can.